Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Ready or not. Two Tongues podcast in the house. Just one tongue coming at you today for a little solo episode, a little bit of opinion scholarship. That's what I like to call it. We're going to do some opinion scholarship today on the great Alan Watts, a man after my own heart. Um, Well, we talked about it a little bit already, Beyond Theology. This was a book that was recommended for me uh, by one of my friends on Twitter, I asked for recommendations for Alan Watts, the, mo- the more mystical, the better. And I got two recommendations that I um, uh, decided to act on. Uh, one of them was Beyond Theology, which we're going to talk about today. The other one was called The Joyous Cosmology, which we did an episode on a while back. That was Alan Watts' sort of trip account, his, um, his own mystical experience type of, a, type of a, an account. Uh, really interesting, um, but Beyond Theology, in my opinion, is way better. It's way better and timely. And it's weird how these things work, and I've said this before, how I'll be thinking about or talking about something uh, and then find some reference to it from my past that's inexplicable. Like you may remember I mentioned some of these old books that I bought, just antique books, you know, from the from the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, um, that I bought because I liked the way they looked. I liked the um, appeal, the aesthetic of just uh, some old books. On a shelf, you know, and um, and it turns out that a lot of these books that I bought become, you know, later on in my life become very important books, uh, books that I didn't realize were going to be important to my uh, thinking and, and development, and they have been. So these weird, serendipitous sort of things, and uh, and Alan Watts is no no exception. Kyle mentioned before uh, several times that he sounded like somebody I would really get into, and he talks a lot like I talk, and I should probably pay attention to him, and I just put it put it off and put it off. Uh, but Beyond Theology has really been kind of a mind-blowing read. So, so forgive me, I'm a tiny bit under the weather, but um, allergy season and all. Um, if you remember weeks back, I did a couple of episodes that were sort of related. One of them was called Theosis, and the other one was called was Jesus the only God-man, if you guys remember. And in those episodes, we talked about Kyle getting into Orthodox Christianity, this idea of theosis, what it means to become God, to become one with God, um, that sort of thing, and what that meant in a Christian context. And I was like amazed by that. I was like picking that up and running with it. Like this is something that I didn't realize was a part of Christianity that aligns with some of these more mystical ideas that I've come to to love and to trust and and uh and then after i did that episode i did this was jesus the only god man where we talked about from the scripture the argument that um 
that Jesus becoming God or being one with God, the way that the scripture um, tells, that that is not exclusive to Jesus, but rather something that applies to all humanity or for, or perhaps the entire cosmos. Um, any any subject, any individual subject, um, anything imbued with life and consciousness is the same thing that Jesus is supposed to represent. And there's this idea of unity, of being one with God, and that's something that is so much a part, a fundamental part of the mystical experience. Maybe it's the most important part of it. Um, that I wanted to find a way of reconciling my own Christian upbringing with this more mystical idea. And Alan Watts, um, we talked about him in the past, so I won't harp on it, but he's somebody who at one point studied and became a Christian minister and then moved to the U.S. and began studying Eastern religions. And he backed out of the ministry and became this great speaker about really unifying or bridging the gap between East and West, helping uh, people in the West understand Eastern religions. And he does something like that in this book, Beyond Theology. He's not, he's not, you know, an apologist for Hinduism and Buddhism. He's not trying to get Christians to uh, convert or anything like that. Um, but he is talking about ideas from Hindu and Buddhist religion and, put in, and interpreting them through the context of Christianity. And he says something, and this isn't one of the quotes I pulled for today's discussion, but he said something in there about how, uh, and it reminded me a lot of... Um, that book we read, uh, Buddhist, uh, Jesus and Buddha uh, by Marcus Borg, where he was talking about how there's a way in which you can interpret these Buddhist ideas as a Christian. And um, Alan Watts said something like that, where he's talking about you can interpret these um, Hindu and Buddhist ideas from a Christian perspective, and that there's also a especially in Hinduism, because it's a very liberal um, religion in, in certain ways, um, in terms of their um, um, not being militant about um, only one path to salvation, only one path to God. They're being a little bit more flexible with the boundaries and, and accepting. And so there's a way from Hinduism to look at Christianity, and, and he, Alan Watts focuses on this quite a bit, to look at Christianity as this radical experiment in reincarnation, that, that the Christian path is unique. And he says something like, only in Christianity are the stakes so high. And I think what he means by this, of course, is that as a Christian, you believe that your, your actions in the world are going to determine either um, eternal paradise, heaven, or eternal damnation, hell. Right? And there is no second chances. There is no reincarnation. You don't get another chance to develop your good karma. It's, this is it. And you have a two paths to follow. And as a Hindu, um, you can live your life that way. As a Hindu, um, you can live your life that way, accepting Jesus as an incarnation of God, um, accepting this path as maybe even a, a final attempt at... Um, Nirvana, a final attempt at uh, overcoming the cycle of reincarnation. Um, and, uh, and so Alan Watts talks about how with some traditional religious perspectives, you can't ever reconcile Christianity with Hinduism or, or Buddhism. But in certain other co contexts and certain other ways of looking at it, um, there is a way to reconcile them. And and I'll remind you of something that Kyle said when we were talking about his kind of 
introduction to orthodoxy and getting into orthodox Christianity is that he said that he was amazed by going to the liturgy and seeing the orthodox people worshiping because they took their religion very seriously, which is something that he wasn't really accustomed to. Um, and I, I say that because many people, Kyle's no exception, will look at contemporary Christian service with, you know, acoustic guitars and, you know, it's all about the singing and and the uh, pageantry and all that as something not quite religious enough. And so these people took it seriously, and he noticed that. He also noticed that there was some goal to the religious experience or the religious practice. So this idea of theosis being a goal that you can become like God, you can become holy, you can become one with God, and we can tiptoe ever so closely to saying you can become God. But Kyle won't do that, and I don't think the Orthodox Christians will either. They're not going to go over that 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 hump. Um, but there's some goal to it. And Alan Watts uses these same ideas coming mainly from Hinduism, which we're going to talk about, and fits them neatly into the Christian story as told by Jesus himself in, in his own words from the Gospels, as well as St. Paul. And I thought that was really interesting because it wasn't really an angle that I focused on. I should have, but I didn't. So Alan Watts has done it for me and, you know, well done. So here we go. Without further ado, I'm going to jump right into this. I'm going to call the first section, The Mystery of Identity. And we're going to talk a little bit about consciousness here and some of those hippy-dippy ways that I used to do in the early days of the podcast. So I'll try to keep it as concise as I can. But here we go. Here's the first quote from the book I want to talk about. Alan says, Whoever knows that he knows must be amazed. Knowing that one knows generates a confusion of echoes in which the original sound is lost. For when I know that I know, which one is I? The first which knows? The second which knows that I know? Or the third which knows that I know that I know? All right, so so you get the idea. Here we're, we're really wanting to focus on the idea of identity, what it is that you are, the thing that you call yourself, the thing that you mean when you say I. What is that thing? And he's trying to just kind of illustrate for you the absurdity of, of being self-conscious. And it reminds me of a quote I've said many times, but I'll say it again, from, from Hegel's um, Phenomenology of Spirit. In the very beginning of that, Hegel says, self-consciousness has before itself another self-consciousness. And I get this image of myself looking at myself in the mirror or something like that. And that's what self-consciousness is like. And this is, the, this is what Alan gets to when he says, as soon as you know that you're aware, that you are a subject, that you have consciousness, as soon as you're aware of that, you're lost. Whatever yourself is, is lost in this, in this what he calls confusion of echoes. Because how do I know which one it is that I am? Am I the first, one, the first version of myself, the one that knows? Or am I the one that knows that I know? Right? Am I this third person looking down and observing that you're a creature who knows? So now you have this self-conscious paradox. You're, you're two people, or maybe three people, or maybe infinite selves. It's not so simple as to say, I am, or I know. Because the moment you know, are you the one that knows, or the one that knows that you know? And there's, there's a really legitimate separation 
between being conscious and being self-conscious. And this is what he's pointing out. There's this fractal mystery involved with being self-conscious. Then he says, the act of knowing, what I call I, seems to be without any tangible foundation. It springs from the void. I am therefore to myself a stranger, meeting the world, but not really belonging. All right, so this is great also. Just how he opens this up, the act of knowing what I call I. So have you ever considered yourself, the thing you refer to when you say I? That what you're referring to, what you're pointing to, is the act of knowing. You know, what is I? I am the knower, right? But is there really a knower or is there just an act of knowing? Is the thing that you call yourself just sort of a continuity of a process called knowing, you know? And that can include sensing and memories and all kinds of things, but yet it's still knowing. The act of knowing is something like what we mean when we say the self or I. It's weird, right? Because we, we like to think about that as encapsulated in, in our, under our skin, as being recognizable by, my, by our face and our, the sound of our voice and all our interests and, and so forth, preferences. But that's something like a being. That's something like a, like a finite being. The act of knowing, though, it's not so cut and dry that that's limited to a material, physical being. The act of knowing seems to be detached from that somehow. So he says it seems to be without any tangible foundation, right? The thing that knows is something like consciousness. It's something that's numinous, spiritual. It's, it's not the same as material, you know, physical bodies, right? This is why we have this, this dualism that we can't shake, this idea of a division between mind and body, or soul and body. And wherever our soul is, whatever, wherever our consciousness is, whatever that means... Is, is without a tangible foundation. It's like, and this is why he says, we open up our eyes, we, we, we encounter the world, but we never feel like we really belong to it. The thing that observes the world from behind our eyes is a stranger to the world. It's something else. It's something unlike the world. And I want to point out that this estrangement, it, it shines a light on... It shines a light on what it means to be a self, what it means to, to, to be an I, right? It, it, it's a strange thing, and it makes you think about that. And this, this is the question of identity that Alan Watts is going trying to get to here. So let's continue. He says, Your I and my I are pockets of the same current. I am unconscious of my being, in fact, the whole current. So, so this is interesting. This is one of these hippy-dippy, one-with-the-universe sorts of statements, but when he says your I and my I, he just means yourself, your, your, whatever it is that you are deep down, your consciousness, yourself, and mine are pockets of the same current. They're, they're identical in some way. It's like on the surface we seem different, we seem disconnected, we seem separate, but on the deeper level, our, at the level of our being, we're identical. And that extends to everything, right? He says, 
I am unconscious of being, in fact, the whole current, all of being, everything that is, God itself, the all, okay? And he uses the word unconscious, and I think that's, I think that's important because to be unconscious of something is not necessarily to be disconnected from it, and I think that's important. We talked a little bit about Bernardo Kastrup in, 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 in uh, earlier podcasts. He's this idealist philosopher who talks about this idea of having a dissociative boundary, something that seems to cut you off from the rest of the, of, of the cosmos, something that seems to make you a unique individual. But it's this dissociation, it's this blind spot that, that gives you this perception of finitude and individuality and form that doesn't really exist. Really, you're part of the cosmos. You're one organism with everything. You're part of it. You're not dis, you know, distinct from it. And so the idea of being unconscious is, is, is something like this boundary, right? It's like, if I've forgotten where I left my keys, I'm dissociated from that memory. I might still be able to, oh yeah, remember, and then I'm reassociated with it. Does that mean that that memory didn't belong to me for a second? It was always there. I just had to tap into it, whatever that means. Figure out how to tap into it, and suddenly it's my memory again. And So the question really is, how far can we extend that analogy? If you're unconscious of being one soul with all the rest of humanity, if you're unaware that your soul is identical to everyone else's, does that mean it's not true? Does that mean you're not really one thing? Or it just means you're unaware of it. You have a blind spot that separates you from them. Some sort of a psychological barrier. So that's what we're going to sort of focus on here. All right, Watt says, Western cultures have bred a type of human being who feels strongly alienated from everything which is not his own consciousness. He does not know that his sensation of being I is a glimmering intimation of what the universe itself feels. So there's something here that reminds me of process philosophy. It reminds me of uh, Alfred North Whitehead, who we talked about before. Because if you remember, Whitehead talked, talked about this model of reality, which really matches pretty closely the, the kind of modern understanding of physics, that everything is connected, Right? Um, this is sort of chaos theory, you know, the flapping of a butterfly's wings in Australia causes a tsunami in America, that kind of thing. Everything is connected in ways that's hard hard for us to understand. All of the cycles and the um, balance and nature of electromagnetism and gravity and, and strong and weak nuclear forces and every all this stuff, it, it's, it's all connected, right? Actions and interactions, cause and effect, everything is connected. And so when Alan Watts says he does not know that his sensation of being I is a glimmering intimation of what the universe itself feels, he's making a connection between this idea of having an identity, of being a subject that, that we, you and I have, that we, we understand is closely associated with our being self-conscious, that we, can, we understand what we are. And uh, um, he, he's basically saying that this is, there's something like this that the universe feels or that the universe experiences. It's like it's not just you that experiences it. This is a common experience to everything and, and, and all things. This idea of being a subject. 
and Al- and Alfred North Whitehead he basically paints this picture in in his philosophy. Excuse me, I'll sneeze there. Um, that he's basically paints this picture that we're all organisms that are made up, um, that are making up or, or constituting some larger organism. And that organism is constituting some larger organism. And on and on and on it goes. There is no end to it, something like that. So you have this idea of a, a, this sort of fractal image that shows up. And that's also common in mystical experience. I'm feeling another sneeze coming on you guys. All right, so um, he says... Catholic and Protestant orthodoxies stand powerfully opposed to any viewpoint that seems to compromise the integrity of the individual soul. Any suggestion that there is some inner level at which God and man are identical. For the boss loves and judges every single creature separately. So he's, he's, he's making some points here about Western civilization. He said that we, we have uh, become very detached from anything that, that we don't consider our own consciousness. Right? Everything is other except for us. It's an alienating feeling from the world rather than a participating feeling in the world. We're not part of the process. We're some sort of a spotlight that sits on an, in a, in an, uh, in on an island, you know, looking out at it from some other place. And, he's, and he makes this point here that in Christianity, Catholic and Protestant orthodoxies, um, that they that they emphasize this even even further. You can't compromise the integrity of the individual soul, right? It can't be blended in with some universal soul. It can't be part of God or anything. Why? Why can't we consider that? He says, because the boss loves and judges every single creature separately. Who's the boss? Right, God. Because in Christianity, God judges you individually. So you must be an individual, right? Because the the weight of your sin and of your virtues is going to determine the fate of your of your soul and your eternal future. That's that's you know part of Judeo Christianity. It's an important part of it. So if there's a way in which you can see your soul is not belonging only to you, but being shared or being or belonging strictly to God then you're muddying up the waters of the whole theology. So we can't have that. Right? So this is an important differentiation between Hinduism, which I'll remind you is one of the oldest, if not the oldest, continuously practiced religion in the world, with very, very deep roots that go far back before Christianity, before Judaism for that matter. And in Hinduism, they don't have this confusion. They have, they have a greater level of acceptance of the continuity of being and of the connections between well, what they call Atman and Brahman. It's just soul, spirit, God itself. And this is one of those areas that Alan's going to point to that if we can reconcile this between Christ, Christianity and Hinduism, that we may that we may, we may find ourselves with a maybe a better religion than both. So I'll save that for just a bit, but a little foreshadowing. All right, he says, Hindus and Buddhists have never felt that reality is severely divided into creator and the created. Hinduism asserts 
the ultimate identity of oneself and the Godhead. The self referred to here is not the ego, but the spirit, the Rak Adunai, or breath of the Lord, which gave life to the clay image of Adam. We might say that man's being is the imminent presence of God, a beyond which is within. It's beautiful. And Alan Watts has a way of speaking beautifully. So there you have it. So he's saying that the Hindus and the Buddhists never had this issue about the individual soul being important, uh, being important that it be individual, and that they had never really divided in hard lines the creator from the creation, that they've always been seen as something like a unity. And Hinduism asserts that ultimate identity, everyone's identity, everything's identity, is the same. It's the only thing that is God. And then he, then he clarifies the self he's referring to is not the ego. It's not this individual feeling of self. It's the deep down what yourself really is, this hidden thing, the, the breath of God, the Rauk Adonai. So he ties that back into the Christian story, the breath of God that was breathed into the image of Adam. And then he says, we might say that man's being is the eminent presence of God, a beyond which is within. And I think that's great. I, I, I wanted to keep that sentence in because I love it. But it reminds me of something we talked about um, in one of my prior episodes on the same subject. We talked about how when God creates in the beginning, right, when he creates the heavens and the earth, it says that his spirit is on the surface of the waters, on the surface of the deep. So when God creates the cosmos, he's immediately present in it. Right? God is never in, in the Bible seen as being outside of creation. And that kind of blew my mind, actually, because I never really noticed it until I was reading the, at this this level. When God creates, so God pre-exists, of course, but when he creates, as soon as that creation is done, he is there within it. He's not separate from it. And when he creates man, he's there within man, imminent within man. And this is what Hinduism is saying. Man's being is the imminent presence of God. Your soul, your animating spirit, whatever that is, you know, the thing responsible for your consciousness and your life, what that is, is God. A beyond which is within. Isn't that great? All right, he says, Hinduism asserts that all experience whatsoever is God's, and that God is the one and only knower and seer. All multiplicity and separate individuality are God's dream or maya. All beings are the masks of the one divine self. Ah, oh boy, allergies. So, Immediately what comes to my mind here is something that I said when I had a mystical experience, and I've talked about this before. Um, I, I said lots of little things that I remembered that came to me. And one of the things I said was, another set of eyes for that which sees. It's like this partial sentence that I just kept repeating to me. Another set of eyes for that which sees. And the idea behind that was that every seer, every living th force, that, that looks out through a set of eyeballs or has experiences, that what is having the experience is the same between individuals. 
And so this was my own intuition after having a mystic experience. It happens to line up exactly with what Alan Watts is saying Hinduism asserts. Remember, God is the only knower and seer. And then, in fact, one of the very first things I said after a mystic experience is that is that reality is God's dream. Now, I wasn't familiar with his concept of Maya when I said that, but I had this exact thought. And it's not a perfect thought. It's limited by, you know, language, but that's what it was. Reality is God's dream. And Alan Watts says, all multiplicity and separate individuality are God's dream or Maya. So in Hinduism, they had this idea that the that the material physical world that we exist within, even our bodies, is something like an illusion they call Maya. And what what animates this illusion, what exists within it, is God itself, Brahma. All right, he goes on, he says, Christianity objects to what it calls the monism of the Hindus, because without differentiation, there is no place for the supreme values of love and relationship. However, what the Christian says about the three-in-one relationship of the Trinity is almost exactly what the Hindu says about the many-in-one arrangement of the universe. Isn't that interesting? So, so in Christianity, you're, you're never going to see a Christian allow this radical monism, which just means all is one. And they'll flirt with that all day long, but they're, they're very reluctant to say that there isn't a distinction between man and God, which is interesting for a Christian to say because the, because the founder of the religion was exactly that, right? That, that example of being both man and God. However, according to traditional Christianity, that's not available for us, at least not, not exactly, so they're going to reject this idea of a radical monism, of an idea that God and, and the cosmos, or God and man, are really deep down one and the same, something like that. And the reason is, again, because there's no place for, for love and relationship. And that's super important for Christianity, right? The example of Jesus is to love and to sacrifice. And this idea of relationship is a relationship between the believer and Christ. So if everything is one, there's an idea here that it's not possible to have relationship or it's not possible to experience love. And if you could, it would be some sort of self-love and some sort of self-relationship. And somehow that's no good. Somehow that's... Well, I mean, self-love, just as a, just saying that statement all by itself doesn't sound quite, quite good, does it? But it's all a matter of perspective. And then Alan, Alan rather than going down that rabbit hole to explain that for, for now, what Alan does is he says, even when you look at Christian theology, basic Christian theology, the idea of a trinity, God existing in three persons, you have a unity, you have a one, the thing that we call God, and it's somehow manifest in these three separate ways. And they're, they're considered to be one. The Trinity is three and one, one and three. And so, whereas traditional Christianity doesn't want to accept this idea of a monism, you can't unify the, the cosmos, the creation, with God. 
You can't consider that one thing. But you can consider Father, Son, and Holy Ghost one thing, and that's strange. And he says, but that idea is exactly what you see in Hinduism. In Hinduism, they say the many and the one, the one in the many, right? Brahma, God, is all things. And all things made manifest in a multiplicity of ways. And lots of different deities and lots of different, you know, um, uh, material bodies. Uh, the whole cosmos, space and time, and the whole kit and caboodle. All of that is many and yet one. Just like the Trinity is many and yet one. So you have these ideas there. There's room here for some reconciliation. Then he says, the Hindu says that the universe is God's maya, the creation of an illusion so fabulous that it takes in its creator. This would involve God's finding himself in a position where he seems not to be God, but merely a creature. <laughs> I think that's interesting. It's like by existing within yourself, within your greater being, you're alienated from that greater being, right? When you, when you could you go to exist within the way that Alfred North Whitehead would say, uh, 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 you know, an organism within an organism. When you exist within that organism, you no longer think that you are the larger organism. You're this you're this thing in it, lost in it, you know, other from it. And I want to ask you to remember this kind of Hindu idea because it's going to come up again in a Christian context. But this Hindu idea that God creates Maya, this is his dream, and that he goes to exist within it. And, and Alan Watts says that Maya is, a, is the creation of an illusion so fabulous that it takes in its creator. So you can imagine God getting sort of sucked into this, to this matrix that he's created, something like that. Now he's living within it. So hold that in the back of your mind for later. And the last quote in this first bit I want to tell you is, is awesome. It goes like this. If anyone brought up in a Christian culture says, I am God, we conclude at once that he is insane. But in India, they say, congratulations, at last you found out. And I think that summarizes better than any other way the difference in perspective, in worldview, the difference in conceptualizing the relationship between God and man that exists in Christianity and in Hinduism and Buddhism. Right? If, if a Christian says, I am God, we all say he's crazy. I've been called crazy for saying the same. But in India, right, with this culture that, that is very different, they say, congratulations, at last you found out. It's like this coming of age thing. It's like you've, you've finally figured out the secret that, that, that the wise people always discover. And that's such a difference. And it might be the difference that makes a difference in the faith of the future, whatever that might be. And that brings me to the next section, which is called the problem of religion and crafting a new one. So... So what Alan's trying to do in this book is to talk about a way that Christianity can exist and maybe did once in the deep past that will be more true, that will satisfy the objections that Kyle said, what I mentioned earlier about, about Christianity not seeming to have a goal, 
you know, the, the brand of Christianity that he was raised in, that we were raised in. It doesn't seem to have a goal that you're striving towards, and it's not taken very seriously. Like maybe, maybe there's a way of being a Christian that solves those problems. And, and as far as this mystical insight that we talked about, that we see everywhere in Hinduism and Buddhism, this all-is-one sort of idea, um, that maybe there's a way of reconciling Christianity with that, with those sorts of ideas, that will make a religion greater than Hinduism, and greater even than the way Christianity is practiced today. So we're going to take baby steps to get there. And this, this part of the story is not so much about what Christianity could be. It's before that. It's talking about if Alan Watts could create a religion that would solve these problems, what would it look like? So that's why I call this section the problem of religion and creating a new one. And it opens like this. We must imagine a new kind of individuality in which there are two spheres with a common center. The outer sphere is the finite consciousness, the ego, which believes itself to be the knower of experience. But the inner sphere is the real self, unknown to the ego. Okay, so imagine imagine that what you call yourself, what you refer to when you say I, isn't just your ego. It's not, it's not just your face and your name and the sound of your voice and your personal history and your memories and your preferences and all these things that you attach to yourself. It's something else. It's something that you don't really know anything about. It's something that is unconscious to you. It's what breathes your lungs for you. It's what thinks your thoughts for you. It's what grows the hair on your body and your head. It's the thing that you don't control, that you don't have connection to, that you don't have control over. And yet, it's the most important part of yourself because without it, you would be dead. You wouldn't have existence, right? It's the, it's the animating spirit that, that you know nothing about, that you live and exist within and know nothing about. So this is, this, this is an idea of the individual. Right? You've got the layer that you normally call yourself, this outer layer, this finite layer, and something, something in between, something lower, something deeper, something that's shared with everything and everyone. Now let that be true for you for a moment while we read through the rest of this. He says, The fantasy religion would require that at some time the two spheres would merge that my inmost self would awaken from its dream to transform my superficial ego with a shock of recognition. It will be taken for granted that the inmost self is eternal and indestructible because it is all that there is. The totality of space will be the field of its consciousness. And this will fit very well with current ideas of space as a dimensional continuum curving in upon itself, having no outside. Okay, so what he's saying here is if you have this idea of this, just these two spheres of a self rather than one, that it, it would be possible to have a merging of these spheres, an experience where the outer sphere, the individual ego, recognizes even for just a second that it has this deeper self, that it is something more than it thought it was. 
to connect with this hidden unconscious part of itself that connects it to the rest of, of, of the cosmos. He said it'll be a shock of recognition. That makes perfect sense to me. If you've had a mystical experience and you've, and you've been there, it is like that. It's like a paradoxical remembering. It's like you're amazed, but it's familiar that this idea of, of, of your identity being deeper than you ever imagined it was. He said it'll be taken for granted that this inmost self, this eternal, indestructible part of us, is all there is. So this is this idea of Maya, this idea that the physical world is a little bit of some something like an illusion. We can't quite say. But it's not real to the level of your soul. That's indestructible and eternal. It's real in a way that the material world isn't. And that's what gives it, the, the physical material world, this, this flavor of being illusory. Because you encounter something realer than real. And then space becomes the field of consciousness. And he said that fits in perfectly with, the, with modern ideas of physics because what you have is a dimensional continuum. You have some sort of geometry that curves in on itself. Right? It goes into itself. It has no outside. Its inside is its outside. It's self-contained. Then he says being is vibration. It's also a, an instinct I had in, in mystical experience, by the way. Being is vibration. It is a state of come-go, symbolized in the fundamental up-down motion of the wave. Rhythm lies at its heart. Nevertheless, without some degree of obstruction, rhythm does not happen at all. To realize rhythm, the infinite consciousness will therefore have to obstruct itself in some degree. Alright, so this is a very image-heavy uh, sentence here, but we could try to picture this together. He's saying being is vibration, and we know that. I mean, we know from a physical level that, uh, you know, the zero-state energy that matters always, even at the lowest energy levels, even at absolute zero, uh, the, the subatomic particles are vibrating, you know, they're, 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 there's energy there. Um, everything is always moving and vibrating, and you can't get rid of that. It's, it's a permanent fixture of reality. So we, we get that. Being is vibration. And then we can see how that can be um, illustrated with a, with a wave, image of a wave, up and down, up and down. And he says, the, at the heart of that is rhythm, right? This up and down, up and down, ba 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 ba. That there's always a rhythm to reality. There's a rhythm to the brain waves that you see it, you know, in the hospital shows when they strap on the, you know, the, the equipment, and your heart rate in the same way. There's a rhythm to everything. And then he says that rhythm doesn't happen without being obstructed, right? It has to be on, off, up, down, right? There has to be a change. It can't be up forever, down forever. It has to be up, down, up, down, stop, go. You don't have rhythm. And so what he's trying to get at here is this idea that the infinite consciousness, this thing that we call God, has to obstruct itself in order to be, in order for this activity for this experience that we call reality. It has to obstruct itself where there is no rhythm, there is no story, there is no reality. So God has to obstruct his own infinity in order for, in order for him to exist 
in a finite way in order for reality to exist as it does. And he goes on, he says, in some such way, our hypothetical Godhead would be maintained by introducing the experience of otherness. These rhythms would issue forth in the guise of other beings, yet these others still remain the behavior of the inmost self. So this obstruction that creates the rhythm is God, again, in this fantasy religion that Alan Watts is throwing together for us to look at, is God existing in these individual manifestations. There's something that takes the infinite being of God and makes it finite. It takes the all sounds together all at once and makes it one sound at a time so that you have a rhythm, so that you have something that's knowable, so you have something that's experienceable, so that God, whatever that is, can experience itself. And then he says, by now, it will be obvious that my hidden self could very well be imagining this situation in which I now find myself. The same would be true of every other individual. Thus, the lesson of this fantasy is that by a consistent thinking through of my fondest dreams for an explanation of this universe, I come right back to willing the place where I am. So what he's saying here is, if he was imagining this fantasy religion that solves all these problems and is perfect as far as he can conceive of it, he's imagining himself as the creator, lost in this maze of Maya, right in this, in this dream that, that he's created to inhabit. And that once he gets to that to that point in his thinking, he's like, now I can't say for, for, with any kind of certainty that that's not exactly what's happening now in this thing that I call myself. Am I not God lost in this Maya that I've created? And if I was trying to think, how, if I were God, how would I have done this? And the answer that Alan gets to is, well, it might have happened exactly this way, and the proof of that would be exactly the experience that I'm having. So he starts, he ends right where he started, in a manner of speaking. And that brings us to the next section. It's, I'm going to call this one, the conscious, excuse me, the unconscious one is the conscious many. Our Alan starts with a couple of, kind of, uh, couple of quotes from the Bible that are just sort of a hodgepodge together here, and I'll just read them to you. In the beginning was the Word, and God said, let there be light. By the Word of the Lord were the heavens made. The Word of our God shall stand forever. So what do you notice? You notice a lot of, a lot of quotes here about words and, um, and God speaking, right? The Word and God speaking. That's what, that's what we see here. Then Alan says, in the tradition of Hebrew and Christian ideas, the supernatural world is related to the natural in the same way that words are related to things. So I think what he means there is something like the representational, right? We, we come up with a word to represent a thing that exists. So it is a, it is a, 
a less sophisticated copy. It is an abstract copy of something that exists in the world. It's an abbreviated version, right? And he says that the supernatural world is related to the natural in that sort of a way. He says, ordinarily, one would suppose that things came first and words were later invented to describe them. But in the Bible, it's just the reverse. The word comes first, for it is the name of the thing, which, when uttered by God, brings the thing into being. So the word comes first. He says, in the Western world, all that is spiritual is associated with symbols, with words, ideas, and abstractions. The physical universe is an incarnation of the word, a replica of ideas in the mind of God, form trying to express itself. All right, so, and, and there's truth, obviously there's truth in this. You can see, according to a Western sensibility, spiritual things are abstract, aren't they? I can say heaven, soul, spirit, demon, angel, right? All of these things are, they, they don't, they don't link to anything, any particular here and now, right? They're abstract. They're ideas. So, you know, fair enough. Mm-hmm. And then he says that the physical universe is seen as the incarnation of the word, right? God speaks it into being. Let there be light. It's something like a replica, like a representation of ideas in the mind of God. That's a very, very idealistic thing to say. If you're into philosophy, idealistic philosophy, like we talked about with Bernardo Castrop, this is exactly the kind of thing that you hear. And the word, of course, is in Greek is logos. So let's let's continue. He says, the logos was there in the mind of the maker, even before the work was begun. This cosmology seems to represent a particular development of human consciousness the transition from living by instinct to the attempt to live by thought. It represents the emergence of the individual ego and of its capacity to control events by efforts of will. It represents the birth of self-consciousness. All right, so this is interesting. Like Part of this is intuitive and I understand it, but the idea that, that the philosophy of the Bible talking about the word pre-existing, um, pre-existing the things that, that they represent, the word being this creative force, that that represents a transition in our common psychology. Like there was a time when human beings existed very much like animals, and maybe even a time before our brain was sufficiently developed so that our mind could manifest like it does. Like, I would have been conscious, but not self-conscious. Like our dog or, or you know, a farm animal or a wild squirrel on the tree outside is conscious, it's aware, right? It's aware that it exists, it's aware that it's hungry, it's aware that it's in pain, but it doesn't know that it knows like we do. So there's a difference between being conscious and being self-conscious. And the primary difference is that when you're like an animal, when, when you're conscious to that level, that you are a creature of instinct, right? If you see food, you eat. You know, if you see a mate, you have sex. If you, you know, are tired, you sleep. There's never a question about what you should do. 
You just respond, right? You respond to the stimuli around you. You have no choice in the matter. You're like a machine to, to some degree, a conscious machine. And then at some point, we aren't that way anymore. At some point, we can consider, we can, we can weigh decisions, we can think before we act, before we speak. And so we're not controlled by instinct. We're not, we're not, we're not going with the flow of nature anymore. We're, we're sort of riding that wave like a surfer now, rather than just flowing like we're part of the water. And this idea, this concept of the logos, corresponds to that psychological change in human beings. We, we were like animals, living by instinct and impulse, and then we something changed, something happened, and we're no longer that creature anymore. And then we think, there's this thing called logos. And reading a lot of Carl Jung like we did in, in the past, he does a, a lot of talking like this, like there, like there are trends in mythology that you can see that do seem to correspond to development, human development. And a lot of it is psychological development. You know, like as an example, if you, um, you notice that a uh, religion has, um, um, like a, an ancient uh, religious system has an emphasis on fertility and crops and, uh, you know, um, uh, there's all sorts of fertility rituals and, and goddesses that are based on, um, you know, women, menstruation and the moon and the 28-day the cycle and all these sorts of things. You might have a, a, a culture like that that has a religion that's based upon fertility and birth and death and these cycles of the moon and all that. And clearly those sorts of things are associated with farming, so before agriculture, that idea wouldn't exist. You wouldn't have this idea of cycles of birth and death with the crops the way that you see it with, um, with menstruation. You wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't connect um, you know, the, the crops that you're sustaining yourself with, like the birth of the crops, with the birth of human, human beings. You wouldn't make those same connections if you were living like a hunter-gatherer, let's say. So you know, psychologically, human beings were at a certain point of development when they created a religion like that. And this is what Alan Watts is pointing to here. This idea of Logos came about as a consequence of this change, this very deep change that happened in our, in our human past from a, a very intuitive, instinct-driven, conscious being to being something that's self-conscious, like Adam and Eve became after they ate the fruit in the garden, like human beings at some point in their evolution became. He says, It has made it possible for man to compare himself as he is with himself as he should be. And there arose the anxiety of choosing between hunch and reason. There was always the nagging suspicion that the reasoned course might not be reasoned enough. In the moment that man doubts his immediate impulse, there is no end to complexities. From that moment, innocence is lost, and all possibility of return is prevented by the angel with the flaming sword. From then on, we are responsible. We move with constant anxiety, because we never know for sure what is right. So I don't know what comes to your mind, but I got a, I got a silly one that comes to mind, and I'll share it with you. So he says, 
where is it? He says, uh, oh, in the moment that man doubts his immediate impulse, there is no end to complexities. So this is what he means when he's talking about if you were just moved by instinct, like a dog who sees food, who just goes and eats, right? You never think about what the right thing to do is. You just act. And so there is no right or wrong. There only is, right? There, there is only action. There is no right or wrong. And this is the uh, this is the example that came to my mind. I remember being like, in, like in middle school age, and like wanting to have a, a kiss with a girl, you know, getting into a position where that might actually happen, and then second guessing it, like thinking too much about it, like what, what should I do? You know, does she want me to go in? Is this now the time? Am I going to get rejected? And the more I think about it, the more complicated it gets, and the further away I get from getting that kiss, right? If if my instinct says kiss the girl and then you just reach in and do it, you know your chances are pretty pretty good you're getting the, you're getting a kiss right. But as soon as you start thinking about it, second guessing it, then the, there's no end to the complexities and you're never going to get that kiss. It's the idea of being becoming too self conscious, getting in the way. And then he makes that biblical re- reference where he says. And the possibility of return, right, to, to return to that unconscious, instinct-driven reality is prevented by the angel with a flaming sword, which, of course, in the book of Genesis, guards the, guards the entrance to Eden. You can't get back to paradise. Once you become self-conscious, there's no going back. And from then on, Alan says, we are responsible, because we never know then what is right. And then he says, Yet the secret behind the scenes is that this is actually God playing man. Omniscience contracted into ego. God feels himself to be man playing at being God. So this is interesting. Remember, in Alan Watts' mind and in the mind of uh, Hindus and Buddhists, every creature is God, like the mask of God. We're God that doesn't realize we're God. We're, we're animating this Maya. We're God animating it so his own dream, that, that sort of a thing. So that's what he means when he says omniscience, right? The all-knowing contracted into the ego, the infinite contracted into the finite. And, and in the Hindu perspective and in Alan Watts' perspective, this idea that we're anxious now because we have to, we have to be the one to choose, Right to choose what to do, to choose what's right and wrong, and we have all this anxiety about it. That that is is. It's interesting because what we are is God itself. Thinking that we're not God, thinking that we're only a man, but we but we also feel like we're playing God. Right, if we're the ones that get to de- to decide what is right and wrong, what should be and what shouldn't be, well, then we're playing God, and we have anxiety about that. And so, what's funny is we are God pretending to be God, having anxiety about the fact that we're pretending to be God. And and Alan says many times in this book um, about how deeply spiritual people will often laugh or find themselves laughing at this sort of a paradox. And it happens in mystical experience. It happened to me in mystical experience where you're like chuckling to yourself about the paradox and how silly it is. And and when you come to, when you are restored to your normal consciousness, you can't really remember what the joke was all about. 
Alan says, God feels himself to be a man playing at being God. But he's been God all along, you see. All right, he says, when the Lord has his whole Maya arranged before him, including the clay figure of Adam, he comes and breathes himself into Adam's nostrils. Thereupon the Lord looks out of the eyes of the figurine and sees himself walking in the garden just as if he were someone else. Man, oh man. That's my favorite quote of the whole book, hands down. That visual is incredible to me. And that's why I asked you earlier in the, in the story to keep in mind this idea of... Uh, um, you know the, the idea that the Hindus have of being uh, of being God in these in disguise, because here you have, or remember, God gets um, absorbed into His own Maya, right? He he uh, creates what what was the word? He creates a fantasy so so compelling that he loses himself in it, and then then we get this image. We get God creating the heavens and the earth, so He has His Maya from the from the Hindu perspective displayed in front of Him. He breathes himself into the nostrils of Adam. Right? He breathes life, the spirit of God, the Rauch Adunai, into Maya. And then the Lord looks out of the eyes of the figurine and sees himself in the garden just as if he were someone else. Right? He, he no longer sees himself as God the creator. He went from this infinite consciousness breathing that into the finite figure of, of Adam and then opening up those eyes and being finite consciousness and losing connection with identity that, that is still true, the identity that he is God. It's amazing. And it reconciles this Brahman-Atman idea um, with, the, with the Hindus. And all you have to do is paint it with a different brush. You get these, these Jewish Christian images here and you're like, oh man, that makes perfect sense. And the last bit here is, original sin, the something awful that has gone wrong in reality, is the production of the illusion in which the creator seems to become the creature. The same act is the engendering of the conscious ego and the loss of faith and spontaneous impulse. It is the flaming sword that guards the way of return to paradise, preventing us from daring to recognize that we are each the Lord in hiding. Before we can attain that recognition, we must follow the difficult way of consciousness to the point where the ego's pride in itself is entirely debunked. All right, so once we're alive... Once that dissociative boundary for the veil of perception falls over us and we no longer know that deep down we are God itself, we now have to live the way of consciousness. right? And this is a test. This is a path. This is an adventure. This is an opportunity. To what? To realize that what we identify with, what we call ourself, this ego, isn't real. There's something deeper. There's something more. And once we know that, then we seek for that. And then we come to the conclusion that Alan and the, and the Hindus are, st are stating that we, we must and always will return to the realization that 
identity is God. And that brings me to the section which we're going to call the meaning of Jesus and incarnation. All right, so we talked a little bit here before we wrapped up this section about original sin, the something that's wrong, right? It's not the idea of evil, um, you know, making its way into the world the way that a Christian or a Zoroastrian or a Jew might, might tell you. According to Alan here, it's, uh, the original sin is this dissociation, this entering in this world of Maya, this finite cr- creation, and losing track of, of forgetting the truth of our of our deepest self that we in fact are God and all of this is all of all of reality is no different from from our own soul so while we're talking about original sin let's get into this alan says the first adam tainted all humanity with sin the second adam and if you don't know what that reference is to it's to jesus the second adam would by assuming man's birth, suffering, and death unite all humanity with the divine nature. As St. Athanasius put it, God became man that man might become God. He says, Theologians have made of this an extremely complex doctrine, trying to explain how true God could become true man. After all, How can God become truly human without ceasing to be God? As St. Paul put it, Let his consciousness be in you that was also in Christ, who did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptying himself took the form of a servant. Let this consciousness be in you that was also in Christ. Let your consciousness be Christ's consciousness. And don't don't quabble over this idea of being God. Rather, empty yourself and, and take that as an opportunity. That's what St. That's what Paul said. Interesting, right? He says, God, in other words, became man by emptying himself, by a temporary setting aside of the fullness of, of divine power. He comes down and actually participates and all the limitations and sufferings of his, of his creatures, including death. When it is said that in Jesus, God became man, it does not say that he became a man. The real point is that in Jesus, God assumed the humanity of all men. This extending of the incarnation is called the body of Christ, otherwise known as the church. It is supposed to be God in the process of transfiguring the whole cosmos. The Christian way embodies a fuller and deeper challenge to everything that man has supposed himself to be. All right, so there's one more here in this section, but I just want to stop for a second. So this is basically the argument I was making in those last two podcasts I mentioned about theosis and is Jesus the only God-man. When Alan says... In Jesus, God became man. Like it doesn't say that he became a man. That 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 bridging the gap between the divine and, and, and the human is for all of us. It's for all humanity. And this idea of the church as the extension of the body of Christ is exactly for this reason. 
to transfigure the whole cosmos. The way that the way that Jesus was transfigured. The whole cosmos is to be transfigured to become God. And that is at the heart of Christianity. And it's so much closer to this Hindu idea than any traditionalist would allow you to believe. And then Alan says something kind of stunning. He says that the Christian way embodies a fuller and deeper challenge to everything that man has supposed himself to be. A fuller and deeper challenge than what? Than any other religious or philosophical perspective. Because to be a Christian requires that you challenge the ego. It requires that you overcome it so that you can be one with Christ. And that leads me to this last quote in the section where he says, A new sensation of identity could come about within the framework of Christianity. An egocentricity designed to explode into theocentricity. The realization of being one self with God. Jesus put it in the plainest language. He said, I pray that all may be one, even as you, Father, and me... Let me start over. I pray that all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so that all may be completely in unity. It's John 17. And I think that puts an interesting perspective when you're using the words of Jesus himself. And what what does Jesus ask for? That all may be one, even as he and God are one. That all may be one. That brings me to the next section, which will be our last. It's called, Who is Who? I Am. That reminds me, just reminded me of a, a kung fu movie from the, from the uh, 80s, uh, The Last Dragon. Um, for those people who know The Last Dragon, um, I Am. Okay. It begins like this. If one insists that God became man only within the skin of Jesus of Nazareth, this makes Jesus a freak with no effective relationship to other people. If Jesus had such a unique advantage over other men, it is merely a farce to suggest that they follow his example. Does it help that everything he did was the perfect example of conduct and morals, which we are expected to follow without the advantage of being God? It's kind of harsh, but... but worth considering. Right? If you insist that God became man only in Jesus, then that makes Jesus different from us. That makes his life and suffering and death and resurrection a special case. It doesn't connect Jesus to us the way that it's meant to. So we have to maybe second-guess this idea. God became man only within the skin of Jesus. Or if that's something that extends to all of us. He says, To be truly in Christ is to be less and less preoccupied with any external image of Jesus. For the whole meaning of the resurrection and ascension of Christ into heaven, which is within you, is that Godmanhood is to be discovered inwardly. Right? So you remember Jesus said, The kingdom of God is within you. And Alan Watts is saying, Godmanhood is to be discovered inwardly. You find heaven, you find God within yourself. 
And this is what it means to be in Christ. He says, Beyond every death, there is simply I again somewhere else, as there was when I was born. For I am the vine, and you are the branches. I am the way, and the truth, and the life. Before Abraham was, I am. I and the Father are one. Isn't it written in your law that I have said, you are God's? All right, so this is obviously a series of quotes from the Bible emphasizing I am. And Alan says, the point is that identity is God. I am is God. And that's true when, when God is speaking as Yahweh. And it's true when Jesus is speaking. And it's true when you and I are speaking. All of the above is I am. And he says, the ultimate shock of realizing who is who comes only at the moment where my personal self is seen to be nothing. On the principle of St. Paul, and here's another St. Paul quote, as having nothing but possessing all things. Alan says, the nothing is seen to be the same as the all. Thus, to be Christ is to realize one's identity with him who is I am. My identity is always a special case of the identity of the all. I exist only in relationship to everything else, but I did not come into that relationship from somewhere outside. For I am something which everything is doing. I am the whole process waving a flag named me and calling out, Yoo-hoo! A little Alan Wattsism. I am the whole process waving a flag and calling out, Yoo-hoo! And I love this sentence, for I am something that everything is doing. It reminds me of another quote that I brought from Mystical Experience that says, We are the experience God is having. And this, this, is, this is what Alan's saying. For I am something which everything is doing. And then he says, Theology balks at the proposition, identity is God. Because any fuzzying of the distinction makes God an accessory to the sinfulness of the human world. It must maintain the distinction between creator and creature right down to the bitter end. But it should surely be possible to hold that a distinction is important without having to make it absolutely important. Are the differences between a tree's branches annulled because they join in the trunk? All right, so this is just a rational pushback here of suggesting that we can blurry the lines between God, creator and creation, that we can, we can recognize a difference, like, like the, a distinction between branches on a tree, while still recognizing that they join in the trunk, that they are in fact one thing. God can be man and God simultaneously. God can be God and the cosmos simultaneously. One trunk, different, different branches. He says, in sum, faith that salvation consists in Jesus Christ is that this mighty image shatters and transforms our sense of identity. So long as we insist in our individual identity, the crucifixion is an impossible scandal 
about which we can do neither something nor nothing. Thereupon it becomes possible to see that our fall into separate identity comes to an end in the same way that it began, by the mystery of sacrifice or self-emptying. It began with God emptying his spirit into the nostrils of the first Adam. It ended with the sacrifice of the second Adam on the cross, saying, Into thy hands I commend my spirit. Whew, buddy. That brings me to my conclusion. It's so interesting to hear Alan Watts make much the same argument I made a few weeks back in my episodes on theosis and, and was Jesus the only God-man. I kept my arguments mainly in the realm of Old Testament theology, whereas Alan made heavy use of the words of St. Paul and of Jesus himself. It was more compelling this way, I think. To be reminded that Jesus said he wishes for all men to be one in God as he himself is makes it difficult to object to the mystical heart of the Christian path and a closer concordance with Hinduism than either side would like to admit. Apart from this, the comparative approach of understanding biblical stories through the lens of the much more ancient Hindu faith was a stroke of genius for someone like me who retains the Christian faith of my upbringing but who also has had a genuine mystical experience. It is not a simple thing to reconcile the two experiences. Mystical experience showed me that I and the world are more than I imagined them to be. That all is ultimately one. And that there is a reality beyond the material, which renders the material illusory in some hard-to-define way. How do you reconcile any of this with the God of the Bible? But when Alan took the Genesis account of the creation of Adam and painted a picture of God not merely bringing Adam to life, but breathing himself into Adam, animating him with his very essence, and then describes Adam's eyes opening and God looking out at himself as if something external to it, I felt that. The hair stood up on my arms. I recognize myself as the same form with the same seer peering out from my eyes. I saw the Atman of the Hindus as the Rauk Adunai of the Bible and recognize God the Father as Brahman, perfectly, mystically reconciled. This brings us to a close today, but we haven't quite reached the end of Beyond Theology. I have one more episode in store for you on this. So stay tuned. I'll have that out for you in the very near future. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode. <laughs>